Thank you, everyone, for instructing each other this morning in song. That's what Colossians 3 and Ephesians 5 says we're to do. I feel well instructed already. I've already been instructed and convicted. I've already had my own, like, altar call in my own heart. So I'm ready to go home. So you want to just pray and go home? All right, nice try. The Romans, if you're reading the Bible this morning, and maybe you forgot your Bible in the car, or you do not have a copy of the Bible on your electronic device, our ushers are ready to uh, give you a Bible to follow along. Just lift up your hand, and our ushers will find you. Romans chapter 9, uh, this morning, as we continue along in our study of this uh, book, this letter, this epistle written to uh, the Romans by Paul, and his Trust will be encouraged in God's word. Can I just um, compliment very quickly um, the people, the saints in our church who, who really um, are demonstrating by the way they walk with God that they have a sincere desire for the spiritual health of their children. Um, I grew up, as you know, in a pastor's home. Uh, I was compelled of the spirit of God to trust Christ at an early age. Uh, my parents did not have to force me to go to church. Um, uh, there were times when my spirit was always willing, but my flesh was weak, and I understand that. And my dad had a glorious way of uh, when I was a little bit more tired than I ought to be on a Sunday morning of waking us up. And I've told you that story before. He would come into our rooms, and my dad's favorite Disney character was Goofy, and he had mastered Goofy's voice. And he would come in and sing Goofy's favorite uh, aria, uh, sweet potato pie, and uh, if uh, and that would irritate us more than encourage us. <laughs> so he figured the irritation would wake us up, and often uh, it would wake us up. We would quickly fall back asleep, and then he would come in uh, 10, 15 minutes later. It was really, really weird. The only the only morning of the week I saw my dad was Sunday mornings. And now he's, anyways, uh, he would come in with a cold glass of water, and he would drip that ever so slowly on our foreheads. It uh, wasn't waterboarding or anything like that, but uh, if sweet potato pie didn't get us up, the cold water did. Um, but that was very rare. That was very rare. Um, my parents nurtured in me a desire to love the Lord with all my heart, soul, mind, and strength. And uh, I'm forever grateful for that. But I'll tell you what, that took discipline and that took determination. Not that you can separate the two. Life's hard. Uh, we all know that, uh, but the same grace that was available for my parents in the rearing of their children is the same grace that's available for you as you rear yours. And many of you are taking advantage of that. My heart breaks when I see parents kind of uh, passively, aggressively approach worship. My heart breaks when they think that what they allow in moderation, they believe their kids will not excuse in excess, and they will. We've said that over and over, but this morning I want to compliment you parents who take advantage of God's capable grace to sustain you as you train your, parent, your children in the Lord in your homes. And you, and you, are, you are compelled of that grace to, to make sure that they embrace the value of uh, being together with God's people on the Lord's day. And every time the opportunity comes, whether it be teaching children in the Bible Fellowship Hour, or whether it be Wednesday evenings where they're ex you're exposing them to the teaching of God's Word and the fellowship of children their age, or, or Sunday nights with uh, little lights, 
or with the Life app, youth group, junior high and high school, whatever you're doing to avail your children from home to worship of God and his grace, uh, I commend you. And I would encourage you, and those of you who are struggling in that area, uh, to look around at your peers uh, that are availing themselves of that grace and maybe sit down and ask them, how in the world are you doing that, you know? And uh, even more importantly than that, maybe consider those who are here this morning that are over 60 years old that have been in the Lord some maybe 40, 50, 60, 70 years and ask them how God's grace operated in their lives. The, the, the training of the next generation, Deuteronomy 6, Psalm 73, whatever it is, is so essential, so essential. Um, and I thank you for considering that a priority and... and um, as Paul exhorts us in 1 Thessalonians 4, you know, we ought to love God, certainly. Um, but he says, I have, no, uh, I have no reason to teach you about the love of God, for you yourselves are taught of God how to love him and how to love one another. But then he says this, but increase more and more. Never be satisfied. Never be satisfied. And uh, so thank you, and um, praise the Lord. So uh, Romans chapter 9, uh, giving is a part of worship here. I know you folks know that that come regularly. We don't pass an offering plate in the worship hour of the Sunday morning service, but if you've come prepared to worship the Lord, and it is indeed part of worship, the offering boxes are in the, in the hallway there in the lobby uh, for you to, to give uh, as the Lord leads your heart to do that. You know, for me, um, the most exciting day of my life is when I was born again uh, my father led me to Christ when I was five years old. I'm 50 now. I remember that 45 years ago like it was yesterday. Um, probably the second most exciting day of my life is when um, I realized who I was supposed to marry and that my parents and my grandparents' prayers for decades that God would provide for Tim, a girl who knew Jesus and loved him, um, that was pretty exciting. It's been exciting to um, see all four of my children come to know Christ as their Savior and then let that be the most exciting thing that they, that they remember in their lives. I mean, that's just, that's supernatural. That's miraculous. That's nothing a man can bring about uh, in a child's heart, but I'm super excited for that. I'm, I'm super excited when I have the opportunity to share Christ with someone and I see the grace of God alleviate the burden of their sin from their own heart and, and they turn, their turn from their own sin and trust Christ as their Lord and Savior and, and I see the relief in their hearts and the joy and just about everyone that I've ever seen come to know the Lord in person um, when they lift their heads uh, from prayer and I ask them how do they feel they always say what? I feel relieved, right? I feel joy, I, the burden's gone Jesus took the burden of my sin and washed it away. It's a great joy for me to see you experience the opportunity to lead someone to Christ. There are fewer greater joys in our human existence as God's people than to see people come to know Jesus. Amen? Um, I've shared with you before the sad reality of this is that 95% of people who call themselves God's people in our country have never seen someone come to know Christ as their Savior. They've never led someone to Christ. But can I just encourage you? God has every intention in the world to use you to bring someone to Jesus Christ. 
He has every intention in the world. Right? Right? What did he say when he called his disciples, right? Follow me and I will make you fishers of men. So I trust that's a burden on your heart. I'm pretty confident it is for those of you that we know well. But equally as grievous, the opposite, the antithesis, the antithesis of the greatest superlative joy we can know in our lives of coming to know Christ as our Savior and seeing others are, are those who have heard the gospel over and over. They've seen the gospel and life change lived out through people that know the Savior. They've been, the gospel's been made available to them, this eternal life through Jesus Christ alone. It's been sung to them, it's been preached to them, and yet they still say no. To me, that's as gutturally grievous as someone turning their life over to Christ is gutturally joyful. It's agony. It's agony. I have so many friends that, that I love, and, and they're going to they're gonna be my friends whether they, they come to know Jesus or not. And I, I think they know that. Uh, recently, I had the opportunity to have lunch with one of those special friends I've been developing a relationship with for a few years. And during the development of that relationship, I've had from time to time the opportunity uh, to share with him uh, about the Lord, but uh, pieces of the gospel. But this is, this is the first time after several years that I had the opportunity to go through the gospel A to Z. And he, and he listened very graciously, and he asked a lot of good questions. I could tell the Spirit of God was working on his heart. And uh, as we were wrapping up lunch, and, and uh, I said, well, listen, I won't give you his name, but I said, well, listen, so-and-so, you've heard all about Jesus today, and you've heard about his desire for you to own him. What do you think? Would you like to trust him? And he looked up and he said, Tim, you're always going to be my friend. He said, but I'm not done doing what I love to do on Friday and Saturday nights. And I just couldn't help but tear welled up in my eye. I was like, so and so, I understand. I understand. Well, don't ever forget. You can't boast about what tomorrow's going to bring. Jesus said, behold, today is the day of salvation. Don't wait. Don't wait. And I'm still going to love you. Right? Most of my friends that I share the gospel with who aren't ready to trust Christ yet remain my friends. This particular individual who communicated with me regularly has completely stopped. And my heart's broken. My heart's absolutely devastated. Because I know what Christ is to me, and I know what he's been to me since I was five. I've tried to walk with him for 45 years. I know what it's like, and there's nothing like it, like it in the world. There's no one like him. Amen. Right? And you sung so glorious about him, gloriously this morning about him today. There are lots of things in our lives that cause us tremendous grief. Whether it be the losing of these precious souls and 
north of Miami this past week or the, the diagnosis of a terminal illness for yourself personally or maybe your family or friend. Um, um, grief is real because we live in a world that's affected by sin, so grief is always going to be real. But where sin did abound and its effects, grace did much more abound, right? How does a Christian bring themselves from grief to glory in relationship specifically to our context this morning when people we love that we've shared the gospel with continue to reject it when you've been so clear concise and compelling compassionate right? and our hearts grieve how do we find our way back to joy really that's what chapter 9 is we studied that in the first five verses. Paul is saying, I would give up my own life. I would give up my own life in Christ if my people, if my family and my friends that I grew up with could know Jesus. There was only two men in Scripture outside the Lord Jesus that shared that sentiment. Moses, Paul, and of course Jesus was the only one that actually could give up his life because he was God in flesh for the eternal benefit of those who would trust him. So Paul's in tremendous grief. He takes the rest of chapter 9 to work his way out of that grief. And he teaches us here a glorious lesson about how we, how the Roman church can work their own hearts out of that grief. And can I share with you in simplicity how you do that? Consider God. Consider God. When we talk about considering God, what do we mean? Consider his person and consider, along with that, his attributes. His attributes. The more you understand God after you know Christ, the more effectually you're going to be able to work your way out of any kind of grief, any degree of grief, and specifically the very, very special grief that we have when people we desire to know Christ continue to reject him. The last time we were together in Romans chapter 9, uh, we considered verses 6 to 13. I'm not going to go back and, and share that with you again. You can go back and listen or watch that on our website. But we're going to find out here in, in chapter 9 how God saves, and we're going to look at uh, a few of his attributes here to bring our hearts out of this grief of those who reject the gospel, reject Jesus Christ. And verses 6 to 13 taught us that our Lord saves faithfully. He certainly doesn't save. He doesn't call us saved by natural descent or by our own good works, but the Lord does save. And he, he saves faithfully according to what he's decreed according to what he told Abraham, according to what he told Isaac, according to what he began to do from Old Testament to Christ in the New Testament, the Lord saves faithfully. And we always need to remember if we grieve, as we grieve over those who have yet to, to turn to Christ, to continue to reject him, the faithfulness of the Lord but this morning in verses 14 to 18, I want us to consider the mercy of the Lord. The Lord saves faithfully, verses 6 to 13, but here this morning, the Lord saves mercifully. 
Now, often, for those of you that have been in the Lord a long time, when you look at Romans chapter 9, 10, and 11, uh, the tendency is to look at what the Lord does not do. And that's not what he's saying here at all. The Apostle Paul is speaking very actively because he's speaking and how he ministered the Word of God to his own heart, particularly the God of the Word, and particularly the attributes of the God of the Word. I'm grieving, so where do I have to go? And we remember in verse 6, but it is not as though the Word of God has failed. I'm going to go to the Word of God, but the God of the Word and the attributes of the God of the Word, I'm going to start to strengthen my own heart in relationship to this grief I'm experiencing why people I love so much reject a Savior who infinitely loved them so much more. God is faithful. His Word said that He would save, and He has begun to save from the moment man fell into their own sin. And he's been saving faithfully ever since. Well, he saves mercifully. He saves mercifully. Read with me, if you would, these verses. As we said a couple weeks ago in verse 6, Paul answers one of his own questions, and now he's assuming a question the Roman church may ask. And he says, what shall we say? He goes from I to we. What shall we say, then? There is no justice with God, is there? May it never be. For he says to Moses, I will have mercy on whom I will have mercy. And I will have compassion on whom I have compassion. So that it does not depend on man who wills or on man who runs, but on God who, is, who has what? Mercy. For the scripture says to Pharaoh, for this very purpose I raised you up to demonstrate my power in you and that my name might be proclaimed throughout the whole earth. So then he has mercy on whom he desires and he hardens whom he desires. Now, it was very easy for you four times to see the emphasis on the mercy of God there. And so that's what we're going to study this morning. God saves mercifully. When we can understand why all are not saved, as we would wish, our agonizing souls must focus on this particular attribute of God and understand that while all may not be saved, he does save, and he does so mercifully. There are two biblical stories mentioned here that demonstrate what we need to understand in relationship to mercy and how God saves mercifully. Before we consider these two historic examples of God's mercy, we must remember that every time we see the judgment of God on sin in Scripture, that it is always coupled with His mercy. It's very important for us to understand. Clear back to Genesis chapter 3 all the way through history yet to come in the eschaton as described and outlined for us in Revelation. Every time there's judgment, there's mercy. Every time God's patience with man has wore thin in part, and that's seen partially in the judgment on some men, his mercy continues to be extended to all. 
So think about that. When you have your devotions, when you read your Bible on your own, every time you come to one of these places, and we're going to study two of them here, both in the book of Exodus, where God brought judgment for a few, he offered mercy to all. Don't ever forget that. God loves to save mercifully. And those two attributes are often inextricably linked in Scripture. Hold your finger here in Romans chapter 9, and let's go back to Exodus 32 and 33. What does the text say here uh, in Romans chapter 9? as referenced from Exodus chapter 32 and verse and 33. Verse 15 quotes part of this portion of Exodus 32, 33, where God says, I will have mercy on whom I have mercy and I will have compassion on whom I have compassion. What's happening here in Exodus 32 and 33? You know that the Israelites have been brought to the base of Mount Horeb, and Horeb was the place where Moses up to be given the, the law, right? particularly uh, what we would be known as the Ten Commandments. Moses has that time with God. He begins to descend down the hill. Joshua, who goes up partway the hill with him, descends with him. And Joshua hears something um, that sounds like war in the camp of Israel at the foot of the mountain. As they continue to descend the mountain, both, their eyes, both sets of their eyes begin to see that which they feared. The sounds of war was actually the sound of song, a warring song. Very interesting study on your own. But what had happened in that brief time of Moses being on the mount, the people under the leadership of Aaron, who succumbed to what they desired, had built for themselves a golden calf of worship. And they entered into Baal worship. And a true indication that all the nation of Israel was not saved. There was a remnant that was, but the majority had not yet looked to the Christ that was to come in history and bowed their knee to him. You know the story uh, as you read it in that text. And we'll read a few verses here. Uh, Moses' response, the tablets were broken. He came down to the people. And now let's read a little bit here about what was said by God and what was said of Moses uh, as we read here. Let's look at verse 7 and the Lord's response to what the people had done. And the Lord spake to Moses, Go down at once for your people whom you brought up from the land of Egypt have corrupted themselves. They have quickly, Exodus 32 verse 8, they have quickly turned aside from the way which I commanded them. They have made for themselves a molten calf and have worshipped it and have sacrificed to it and said, This is your God, O Israel, who brought you up from the land of Egypt. The Lord said to Moses, I have seen this people, and behold, they're an obstinate people. Now let me alone, that my anger may burn against them, and that I may destroy some of them. Is that what the text says? No. 
God's intention was to fully what? Then you know Moses' prayer. Beginning in verse 11, Moses entreated the Lord his God and said, O Lord, why does your anger burn against your people whom you have brought out of the land of Egypt with great power and with a mighty hand? Why should the Egyptians speak, saying, with evil intent, he brought them out to kill them in the mountains and to destroy them from the face of the earth? Turn from your burning anger and change your mind about doing harm to your people. Remember Abraham, Isaac, and Israel. Jacob, your servants to whom you swore by yourself and said to them, I will multiply your descendants as the stars of the heaven and all this land of which I have spoken, I will give to your descendants and they shall inherit it forever. So the Lord changed his mind about the harm which he said he would do to his people. And all that's happening there is simply this, folks. The Lord is remaining faithful to his eternal decree to, to save That's for another sermon. But God had a number of eternal decrees before he even created the earth. And one of those decrees was to save. And we're finding out here how he mercifully has done so. And what do we find out from this text in particular? Go over to chapter 33 and verse 3. The journey's resumed, and God's given them another opportunity. Go up to a land flowing with milk and honey, for I will not go up in your midst, because you are an obstinate people, and I might destroy you on the way. So they still haven't turned back, and, and the Lord's still being merciful to them. He could, he's battling He's battling because they're sinful and he's righteous and, and they won't obey. And when the people heard this sad word, they went into mourning and none of them put on his ornaments. For the Lord had said to Moses, say to the sons of Israel, you are an obstinate people. Should I go up in your midst for one moment? I would destroy you. Now therefore, put off your ornaments from among you that I may know what I shall do with you. So the sons of Israel stripped themselves their ornaments from Mount Horeb onward. Two long chapters to say this. Out of a couple million people that the Lord could have wiped off the earth, he mercifully only lost 3,000. 3,000. The Lord mercifully saves. Of the 1.9 million plus that are still living, the majority of them are still declared obstinate. What we read here in Exodus 33 is post the time period when 3,000 were lost. Only a very small remnant of the 1.9 million plus truly we know from the testimony of Scripture knew the Lord as their Savior. And God is still being merciful to those he could have destroyed. The Bible teaches us very clearly that in all that the passage 
has taught us that even though man continues to take advantage of God and his mercy, God continues to be merciful in the midst of judgment. I would encourage you to go through the whole text on your own, chapter 2 and chapter chapter 32 and 33 and just concentrate on the mercy of the Lord. Yes, judgment did come, but mercy reigned, granting all the opportunity in their obstinance to still yet turn from their sin and turn to the living God. Go to Exodus chapter 9 now. Let's look at the second story. Exodus chapter 9. And let's look at God's dealings with Pharaoh. Exodus chapter 9 and verse 16, the apostle Paul quotes here, as we already read in Romans chapter 9, for this very purpose I raised you up to demonstrate my power in you, that my name might be proclaimed throughout all of the earth. And we see that verse originally quoted in Exodus chapter 9 and verse 16. Well, what's going on in the passage before us in Exodus chapter 9? We might ask ourselves the question, how did God act mercifully with Pharaoh while he ruled over the Israelites who are held under his own captivity? Well, the context of Exodus 9 is the giving, or part of the context of the giving, of the, Pharaoh, of the plagues upon Pharaoh in Egypt. A plague would come. Pharaoh would have a tender heart and tell Moses... I'm going to let your people go. And then his heart would harden. Another plague would come, and Pharaoh's heart would be softened. And then when it came time for the release of God's people, Pharaoh would harden his heart again. As a matter of fact, some 15 times between Exodus 7 and Exodus 14, the Bible says that Pharaoh hardened his own heart, or God hardened Pharaoh's heart. But during Pharaoh's life, and certainly during the judgment of the plagues, God offered mercy to Pharaoh, didn't he? Where there is judgment, there is mercy. And if you look with me to Exodus chapter 9 and verse 16, we'll see where Paul found his statement in Romans 9. But indeed, for this reason, I have allowed you to what? Remain in order to show what? Who? In order to show Pharaoh. In order to show you my power. And in order to proclaim my name through all the earth. God had merciful intentions towards Pharaoh. It says here, I raised you up. New Testament, Old Testament, I have allowed you to remain. I've allowed you to be born. I've allowed you to live in health and wealth and prosperity in this glorious kingdom. I brought you to this time for hundreds of years where this nation has served you in your kingdom. Pharaoh, you're drowning in the sea of God's goodness and 
Pharaoh, you're drowning in the sea of my mercy. And now I'm going to ask you to let my people go. And if you say no, I'm going to send a plague. But I'm going to allow you to live through all the plagues. As a matter of fact, Pharaoh, you, I'm going to allow you to rally your troops to chase my people all the way to the Red Sea, Pharaoh. And I'm going to allow you to live while you watch your army drown in the sea that I separated from my people to walk over on dry ground for their safety. And Pharaoh, I'm going to allow you to return to your kingdom. I'm going to allow you to live. I'm going to allow you to live. I'm going to allow you to live. I'm going to show you, Pharaoh, my power. All this time you're alive, my mercy is still made available to you. And all this ends up being is a tremendous testimony of God's mercy and man's depravity. And when Jesus said that, you know, the way into eternal life is narrow and the way into destruction is broad. <laughs> and the way into eternal life, few there be that find it. I can understand that mercy. That's the grief that Paul's going through in verses 1 to 5, the, the grief that we explained early in this sermon. I can't comprehend that. I don't get that. I trust a sovereign God to oversee that. But all I know is this. Though only some are saved, God's mercy is still extended to all. Even, even, even the most wicked. Even the most wicked. One author said that God gave Pharaoh the opportunity to repent, but instead Pharaoh resisted God and hardened his heart. The fault is not with God, but with Pharaoh. He goes on to say, the same sunlight that melts the ice hardens the clay. God was not unrighteous in his dealings with Pharaoh because he gave him opportunities to repent and to believe. He had raised him up to show his power to him. Another author goes on to say, Pharaoh was a Gentile and Moses was a Jew, but mercy and salvation was offered to both. Both of them in their lives were murderers. And God offered mercy to both. God raised him up that Pharaoh would have the same opportunity as Moses. Pharaoh was a ruler. Moses was a slave. Yet mercy was extended to both. Egypt would forever typify in Scripture the world and its rejection of Christ because of their love for sin. Yet the Jewish nation would come out of Egypt and from her would come the Christ, the Savior of the world. But yet God spared Pharaoh's personal life throughout all the plagues to show the world God is merciful to save. And if mankind ultimately rejects the offer of salvation through God's mercy, that we can be confident as you go back to Romans chapter 9, that God, if you go back there with me, Again, quoting Exodus chapter 9, Romans chapter 9 and verse 17, that if this is true, it is only true that God's name might be proclaimed throughout all of the earth. There is mercy in judgment. The fame of Pharaoh actually depended on the mercy of God. 
God can actually be glorified through the fame of men who hate him. Because as long as they live, their lives are a tribute to the mercy of God. If God could have wiped out all of Israel, he certainly could have wiped out all of Egypt. And while they bring destruction to themselves because they live contrary to God's heart, they still live. Everyone today that's alive and well on this earth that are Christ rejectors, are testimonies of the mercy of God. Without his mercy, none of us could stand. And certainly the world without Christ would be obliterated. So the conclusion of verse 18 is simply this. So then he has mercy on whom he desires and he hardens who he desires. The attributes of our unchanging God reign throughout this text. There's one attribute never spelled out in this whole text that is clearly understood here in verse 18, as well as the other phrases we will consider in future weeks, and that's the sovereignty of God. The sovereignty of God for the believer is just as much a comfort as it is a mystery. There are no limits, one author said, to God's rule. There is part of what it means this is part of what it means to be God. He's sovereign over the world and everything that happens in it. He's never helpless. He's never frustrated. He's never at a loss. And in Christ, God's awesome sovereign providence in the place we feel most reverent, most secure, and most free. Whenever God acts, he acts in a way that pleases him. God never is constrained to do a thing that he despises. He is never backed into a corner where his only recourse is to do something he hates to do. He does whatever he pleases. This is God's sovereignty. His ways are not our ways, the scripture says, and his thoughts are not our thoughts. So stated in verse 18 amidst the detailing of biblical stories of his mercy in the midst of judgment to save is God's freedom to save. And he does save, doesn't he? Amen. <laughs> Look at you. He does save. Why are some not saved? God mercifully saves. And if some are not saved, it's a testimony of their own sinful rejection of the offer of mercy. God saves, man rejects. One author said, if all were to be saved, we would doubt the holiness of God. And if all men were condemned, we would doubt the love of God. Another godly man said, if you overthink this aspect of the sovereignty of God, you'll lose your mind, and if you doubt the mercy of God, you'll lose your soul. God is faithful to save, and in our context, Paul uses that attribute of mercy to pull himself out of that guttural agony as, why do my people reject Christ? And he remembers that God mercifully saved him. And in the midst of judgment, God has shown mercy to billions as God still patiently allows them to breathe and to live and to have their being and gives them opportunity to turn to trust Christ as their Savior. Next week, we're going to study another attribute of God, that God is righteous to save. He's just to save. And that, too, will be another uh, attribute of God that he, he gives us to encourage our hearts that God is still saving people faithfully, mercifully, righteously. 
and to keep praying that God would use us as faithful, merciful, righteous tools of his own hand to see many in our area come to know Christ as their Savior. God is merciful to save. And folks, he does often save when times are tough. When times are tough. It's no secret, my friends, right, that our country is like Isaiah's words of old, a country that cries peace, peace, when there's very little peace. We're clothed well. We're housed well. We're fed well. We have the most superlative things in comparison to any nation in this world, and yet we're at our worst state. We can paint the house beautiful, but inside we are devastated and we are ugly. This is the time where we may see ugly things happening, but this is the time where God will extend his mercy again to people you live with, you work with, that you walk with. And as they ask the questions, there's a lot of nuts stuff going on around here. What in the world's going on around here? You can just say, God is merciful to save. Amen. Right? I can't explain to you all that's going on. All I can tell you is, Jesus is merciful to save. And he's the only one that can bring peace to my heart. He's the only one. This is an opportunity for us, folks, as a church, to have a harvest of souls like we've never seen before. So continue to be light. Amen. And be like God's attributes, right? These are part of his communicable attributes. God's faithful, God's merciful, and God's righteous. We can be those things in part two as finite, recreated beings in Jesus Christ. And let's be those things to our community. Our Father in heaven, we love you. We thank you for the simplicity of this text. We thank you for giving to us the reminder of the story of Moses and your people in Exodus 32 and 33 and your people and Pharaoh in Exodus chapter 7 to 14, particularly chapter 9 and verse 16, we're, we're reminded, Lord, that certainly you govern all things, but underneath the umbrella of that governance, you do save and you do mercifully save. And as, Lord, we work our way out of the grief of those who reject our precious Savior, I pray that we would do so by considering who you are as you are faithful and as you are merciful. And may we seek to do the same. In Christ's name we pray, amen.